Now we are continuing our study of the duties of Christian fellowship using a treatise written by the Puritan John Owen, and we are examining rules for walking in fellowship with respect to other believers. And presently, we are studying scriptures which provide the justification for Owen's rule number four, and that rule is this. Believers must maintain an unremitting care and effort to preserve unity, both in general and in particular. And according to Owen, the nature of biblical unity has three components. First of all, there is spiritual unity among the people of God. We've already studied that, and we've noted that this spiritual unity is wrought by the Holy Spirit, who dwells in the believer, and then that unity is nurtured by the believer's union and communion with the living Lord Jesus Christ. And then secondly, a second component of the nature of biblical unity is ecclesiastical or church unity. And these two aspects of unity we previously noted, spiritual unity and ecclesiastical unity, they are intimately related. For where there is spiritual unity, there will be ecclesiastical unity as well. We studied some passages that showed this reality. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, 1 Corinthians 1. And they clearly teach that we are to be of one heart and one mind, and we are to cultivate unity among ourselves in the church. And if we are to experience such unity in the church, we must be united in our understanding of biblical doctrine. We must mortify our own remaining sins, and we must have a sincere love for one another. So that's a quick review of what we have studied so far. And this morning we come to some new material and the third component of the nature of biblical unity. John Owen said in his writing, in his treatise, there is civil unity regarding the things of life. Civil unity regarding the things of life. The scriptures teach that Christians in the local church should not strive with each other about the things of this life. And those are Owen's words. We should not strive about the things of this life. Rather, Christians should live in harmony and peace with each other in the local church as well as in the world. Well, what are some of those things of life for which we should not be striving with one another? There are a host of such things, but I will seek to identify only a few of them. Christians in a church should not strive, not argue, not quarrel among themselves about financial matters, about possessions and property, about politics, about government decisions. And when Christians do strive with each other about such things, these things of this life, there then is, to one degree or another, civil disunity. And this foments spiritual and ecclesiastical disunity as well. So such strivings and quarrels and disagreements 
which arise between brethren within the church should be resolved by them as quickly as possible according to the principles of the word of God. Now, when I state that such disagreement should be resolved quickly, I do not mean that there should be a quick fix. I do not mean there should be a superficial resolution. In Jeremiah 8 and verse 11, you don't need to turn there, God rebuked the priests and prophets for such careless, superficial dealings with others, saying, And they, the priests and the prophets, have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. So instead of a slight, superficial, and unsatisfactory healing and resolution, so-called, there should be a thoroughly biblical resolution, which is accomplished in a timely fashion whenever possible. The principle of being determined to swiftly deal with and yet thoroughly deal with our disagreements with our brethren is seen in the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 5. And I would like you to turn to that passage, Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 23. <clears throat> Matthew 5, verse 23. If therefore you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has aught against you, leave there your gift before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are with him in the way lest haply the adversary deliver you to the judge, and the judge deliver you to the officer, and you be cast into prison. And there we end that quote of the Lord Jesus. So in other words, we must deal with our disputes with our brethren regarding the things of this life, biblically and thoroughly and swiftly, and personally, whenever that is possible, sometimes things are beyond our control, and that is not possible, but that is what our goal should be. And having stated this, there are, nevertheless, times when brethren cannot resolve their differences regarding the things of this life. But even in those situations, the scriptures give us instruction and so I would like you to now turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 1. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 1. Sometimes brethren find it difficult to resolve their differences concerning the things of this life. And so this passage gives us instruction what we should do and what we should not do. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 1. Dare any of you, having a matter against his neighbor, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? 
And if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have to judge things pertaining to this life, do you set them to judge who are of no account in the church? I say this to move you to shame. What? Cannot there be found among you one wise man who shall be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers? No, already it is altogether a defect in you that you have lawsuits one with another. Why not rather take wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? No, but you yourselves do wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. And there we stop our reading of this portion. <clears throat> Notice from 1 Corinthians 6, 1 to 8, first of all, Paul understood that serious disagreements between Christians within a local church can occur. Paul was a realist. He did not state what these specific matters were here in 1 Corinthians 6, and it is probably just as well that he did not do so, guided, of course, by the Holy Spirit. For if Paul had stated the specific matters, we might think that the principles which Paul gave in this letter do not apply to our matter, because our specific matter was not explicitly addressed by Paul. And so we may say, well, he addressed that specific thing, but that's not my situation, and therefore what he is saying here does not apply to me. So it's just as well that Paul did not give the specifics. Whatever these matters were between the members of the Corinthian church, they were serious enough in their mind to be brought into a civil court. The point to be noted here is that Christians within a church have remaining sin, and consequently, sometimes not so serious, sometimes serious disagreements, even civil disagreements, can arise between members of the same church. And when such disputes arise, we should not be shocked we should not step back and what is going on here? No, this is a sad, sobering reality of living in a fallen world with imperfectly sanctified believers within the local church. So Paul understood this. We should understand it. He was not shocked. He was grieved, but we should not be shocked. And it's a reason to pray and ask God to help us in our individual lives to be indeed godly and loving one toward another. But notice, secondly, from 1 Corinthians 6, 1 and following, to take a brother or sister in Christ who is a member of the same church, an evangelical church, to a court of law is wrong and shameful. We see that in verses 1 and 7. Verse 1, dare any of you 
having a matter against his neighbor, the neighbor there is the brother in Christ in the church, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. Verse 7, no, already it is altogether a defect in you that you have lawsuits one with another. So by way of qualification, however, Paul was not addressing a situation where a member of the church had committed a felony. For example, if a member of the church was discovered to have embezzled thousands of dollars from his company or from the church, that member must be brought before a civil court for he committed a crime. I believe if you steal, embezzle more than $1,000 roughly from your company, that is considered a felony. And that member of the church would also need to be disciplined by the church. So I'm not talking about that. Paul was not referring to those things. Paul was addressing situations in the church where members were bringing lawsuits against one another before a civil magistrate in order to resolve their grievances. And these were grievances that could have been resolved out of court, should have been resolved out of court, but they brought it to court, and this was wrong, Paul says. This was shameful. It's not even clear that these various lawsuits were legitimate. Paul doesn't state it. We do not know. But they might have even been spurious lawsuits, motivated by bitterness, jealousy, greed, or an unforgiving spirit, because those were the very sin issues that Paul was addressing in these letters to the church at Corinth. There was bitterness, there was jealousy, there was all sorts of uh, greed and unforgiving spirits. And so they may have been motivated by such things to bring such lawsuits one against another. Note what Paul asked the Corinthian Christians at the end of verse 2. Are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? These matters may have even been frivolous matters, frivolous lawsuits. Notice also the words with which Paul began this portion of his letter. In most English translations, verse 1 begins with the words, Dare any of you. You see, what was Paul doing? Again, guided by the Holy Spirit. Dare any of you. Paul asked with stunned disbelief. Are any of you Christians in Corinth, in the church there, so bold, so brazen, so audacious as to take a brother or sister in Christ in the church before heathen judge in order to resolve your disputes? Instead of settling their disputes about property or money or some minor matter in a godly fashion, they were dragging one another before heathen judges. The righteous, Paul says, Christians within the church. And notice, with all of their sins, Paul regarded them as righteous, clothed with the righteousness of Christ. The righteous, the Christians within the church, were willing to have unrighteous judges who were ignorant of Christ, ignorant of his gospel, ignorant of scripture. They wanted them, these heathen judges, to resolve their lawsuits one with another. We must understand that Paul did not believe that unconverted magistrates 
could not minister justice. In God's common grace, they could do so, and Paul understood that. So he was not saying that unconverted magistrates will never minister justice. Remember also that Paul appealed to Caesar for justice on one occasion. But when Paul appealed to Caesar for justice, it was not a case of resolving a serious problem between Paul and another member of the same church. So what Paul condemned here in this letter to the Corinthian Christians was the shameful practice of a Christian member of the church taking another Christian member of the church to a court of law in order to have their disputes resolved. In verse 7, notice there, Paul declared that this practice among the Corinthian Christians was actually an evil defect, a failure, a defeat. He said, no, already it is altogether a defect or a defeat in you that you have lawsuits one with another. In other words, there was no victory in such lawsuits between Christians in the same church. Rather, the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ before an onlooking world was totally defeated. One commentator, David Jackman, noted this concerning this very passage. It's very helpful what he wrote. By the time a dispute between believers reaches the court, The Christians concerned are already totally defeated as Christians. The fact that they have appealed to pagan judgment shows that their trust is no longer in God. Whether as plaintiff or defendant, attacking one's brother or defending oneself, they are immersed in a battle of wits and arguments in which God is automatically ignored and excluded. In fact, It could be convincingly argued that the only winner here is the devil. The very existence of such quarrels between Christians is a defeat for the gospel. And a calumny, that's a word that means a defamation. It is a very defamation against Jesus Christ himself, end quote. So you see, in these unloving, divisive ways, such Christians were defaming Christ. They were damaging his church. They were discrediting one another. They were fomenting rancor, and they were producing discord in the church, all contrary to the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He came to this world to reconcile sinners to himself by his blood and his sacrifice on the cross. He came to reconcile Christians one with another, sinners one with another. And so to do this was just totally contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we must understand that, believe it, and therefore reject such sinful behavior. But notice thirdly from this 1 Corinthians 6 passage, Paul's rationale for bringing such disputes, which brethren in the church have, to the saints in the local church instead of to a court of law. 
We see that in verses 1 and 2 of 1 Corinthians 6. Paul's rationale for bringing such disputes, which brethren in the church have, to the saints in the local church instead of to a court of law. In verse 1, Paul reproved the Corinthian Christians for not bringing their disputes to the saints. In verse 2, Paul then gave his rationale as to why members of the church should be able to resolve their disputes with the assistance of a wise man in the church. 1 Corinthians 6.2, look in your Bibles. Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Notice that verse 2 begins with Paul's question, Do you not know? Paul used this question, Do you not know, in his letter repeatedly in order to bring the minds of the Corinthians back to foundational truths, which they already knew because they were already taught them, but which they had disregarded, which they had ignored, perhaps forgotten. Paul reminded the Corinthian Christians that a day was coming when they, along with all of the saints, would actually judge the world. They knew this truth, but they had forgotten this truth. Clearly, Paul had previously instructed these believers that their judging the world was rooted in the reality that the people of God are truly and really associated with the Lord Jesus Christ. They are in union with him. The exaltation and dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ are their ultimate exaltation and dominion because they are joint heirs with Christ. If they suffer, they shall also reign with Christ, the scriptures teach us. And therefore, Paul asked, if such a destiny is yours, dear Corinthian Christians, that you shall judge the world... Are you unworthy to judge one another righteously in matters which are, by comparison, very small indeed? So you see, he gives his rationale for bringing such disputes, which two Christian brethren cannot resolve between themselves, not to the local court of law, but to the saints within the local church. But notice In the fourth place, when necessary, this is the point Paul's driving to, Christians in a local church should obtain, when necessary, the help of a wise, impartial Christian from that church in order to resolve their disputes. That's in verse 5. It is important to note that Paul was not addressing inter-church disputes. He's not talking about one church here and another church over there. He was not talking about inter-church disputes, but disputes, disagreements between two or perhaps uh, maybe three about individuals within the same church. That was what he was addressing. 
when two individuals, members of the same church, cannot resolve a problem, a dispute between them, whether it's a financial matter or a property matter or matters of some possessions or some other civil matter, then they should seek the assistance from a member of the church who is wise, who will righteously arbitrate between the two members of the church. Now, of course, that can be the church's pastor or pastors. But Paul doesn't state that here. He doesn't state, go to your pastors. He's saying there must be surely at least one wise man within your church who can help you to resolve your disagreements with each other. So such disputes and lawsuits between brethren in the church remind us, sadly, of the sins of selfishness, pride, and lovelessness, which are very often, if not always, at the root of such wrangling between church members. Selfishness, pride, and lovelessness. And therefore, dear brethren, we need to cry out to God all the more, Lord, help me by the Spirit to put to death these sins in my own heart and life, that it will not be selfish, but selfless, as we've seen in previous studies, not be proud, but be humble, and not be loveless, but be sincerely loving one toward another. But in addition to these particular sins, there are at times additional factors which contribute to these wranglings between church members. Sometimes they lead to uh, a desire to go to a civil court, and again, they shouldn't be doing that. Sometimes they don't lead to that high of a level, as it were. But there are, in addition to these sins of selfishness and pride and lovelessness, at times other factors that contribute to disputes between or among Christians within the local church. And that is seen, sadly, by Christians sometimes making a false dichotomy, a false dichotomy between the sacred and the secular in their thinking and thus in their living. And this, it seems, was what the Corinthian Christians did. There was selfishness there in Corinth, in the church. There was pride. There was lovelessness. But there was this wrong thinking. Well, that's secular. This is sacred. You see, this is a legal issue. It's not a church issue. This is a legal issue. It's not a spiritual issue. This is legal. It's over there handled by the secular courts. The church doesn't really have anything to do with this or say about this. Well, you see, that's making this false dichotomy between the secular and the sacred. And the Corinthians were doing this, and we must not do it. The Corinthians viewed their practical disputes with other members in the church as a legal issue, not an issue which the Bible addressed, not an issue that could be resolved by using, employing biblical principles. Totally wrong. And we should not be conformed to this world, squeezed into its mold, thinking that there is this kind of dichotomy. Now, although no one at Trinity Baptist Church has done this, to the best of my knowledge, no one, I believe, is doing this presently, yet there are times 
when Christians wrongly think that their problem or their problems with other Christians within the local church cannot be resolved. So I'm now not talking about those sorts of problems that you would think need a lawyer involved. There can be a lot of problems between Christians in a church, between two individuals or several individuals, where this false thinking is there. Well, this can't be resolved, you see. The Bible doesn't really address this. Well, that's wrong thinking. To think that way is to deny the power of the gospel working in human relationships in the church. The gospel, you see, first of all, brings peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then because there is peace with God, there is the peace of God. But the gospel also brings peace to Christians one with another. The gospel brings peace to Christians who at times are quarreling. That's what the gospel is meant to do. There's the vertical realities, but there's the horizontal realities as well. So when Christians are willing to obey the scriptures, when they are willing to recall the love of God and Jesus Christ for themselves, and when they are willing then to love their brothers and sisters in Christ in the church, you see, those gospel dynamics can help every Christian resolve problems that they have one with another, disputes they have one with another, even if they're not the kind that you'd ever think to take to the legal court system. And again, you shouldn't be doing that anyway. Paul clearly and firmly believed in the reality of this gospel dynamic. And he also believed that God uses means. Of course, the means of the word of God itself, the means of prayer, the means of friends like iron sharpening one another, but also at times in order to heal breaches between brethren, to resolve conflicts between brethren in the church, God uses the means of godly help from within the church, from a brother or sister who is wise and impartial to assist brethren to resolve their conflicts. So mature and wise Christian or Christians can be at times righteously employed to help brethren within the church in such circumstances. And that is what Paul is noting here in verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 6. But notice now from this passage in verse 7, in the fifth place, Christians within the local church should be willing to suffer wrong rather than create fissures and disunity within the church. Verse 7, Paul asks, Why not rather take wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Paul, are you serious? Are you serious, Paul? Really? I'm going to take the wrong? I have been wronged. Paul's asking this. Why not rather take wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? 
Paul's probing questions here were intended to get to the consciences of the Corinthian Christians and should have reminded them of the Lord Jesus Christ's teaching, which no doubt they heard about from the Apostle Paul, teaching such as those recorded in Matthew 5. And I'd like you to turn there to Matthew 5 and verse 38. Matthew 5, verse 38. Matthew 5, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, the Lord Jesus, of course, spoke these words. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, resist not him that is evil, but whosoever smites you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man would go to law with you and take away your coat, let him have your cloak also. End quote. Paul wanted the Corinthian Christians to have the mind of Jesus Christ as spoken by him on the Sermon on the Mount. He wanted them to think and to meditate upon the Lord Jesus Christ's words the Lord Jesus Christ's life, and the Lord Jesus Christ's sacrifice upon the cross of Golgotha under the wrath of God. By his words, the Lord Jesus Christ taught his disciples to love one another. He taught them to love one another sincerely. By his life, the Lord Jesus Christ showed his disciples how to love one another. And by his sacrificial death on the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ supremely demonstrated how to love one another. And Paul wanted the Corinthian Christians to think and meditate upon these realities, the words of Christ, the life of Christ, the sacrificial death of Christ. And we are to do the same thing. Yank the earbuds out of your ears. Turn off your computer. Turn off uh, whatever is distracting you from a media standpoint. Get alone with God. And even if you have five kids, three kids, seven kids, ten kids, you need to say, Lord, help me this day to get alone with you. Maybe that's very early in the morning before the children are awake. Maybe that's during the afternoon when they're sleeping a nap. Maybe it's at night when they're doing their responsibilities or have gone to bed. And husbands, you need to help your wives that they can indeed have time alone with God. You need to help your wives with the dishes. You need to help your wives with cleaning. You need to help your wives with the children. You need to change diapers when that needs to be done. That shouldn't be beneath you. You need to help your wives so that they have time to be in the word of God. 
God. And you need to make time, Mr. Husband, as well, to be in the word of God, to think upon and meditate upon what Jesus Christ has taught, what he has done in his life and in his death. You need to bring that into your mind and into your heart so that it affects your affections and your will and your very perspective on life and the way you treat others around you, including all of the members within the local church. When the Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross of Golgotha, did he assert his rights? Did he guard and nurture his personal interests, insisting upon having his way, demanding that all the wrongs that had been done against him through his entire life be rectified and rectified immediately? I was offended when you, Mr. Pharisee, said this to me. Or Peter, I was put off by the way you spoke to me on that occasion. Is that what Jesus Christ did? Did he insist upon his own way, demanding that all of the wrongs done against him be rectified? No, the Lord Jesus Christ did not do any of that. Instead, he took the wrongdoing of a multitude of sinners which no man can number. He took all of their wrongdoing, all of the sins of all of his elect from all of the ages upon himself in order to redeem them and deliver them from their guilt and from their enslavement to sin and to transform them into his holy likeness. And when you think upon those truths, those realities, they will affect your affections and the way you relate to others within the local church. Listen again to David Jackman concerning this passage. Here I quote him again. The cross of Jesus Christ teaches us that sacrifice Sacrifice, sacrifice is the road to reconciliation and forgiveness. Disputes arise primarily from pride, self-will, and an insistence on one's rights and a defense of one's own interests. None of these things were exhibited in Jesus as he made his way up to the cross for us. Christ's way, therefore, points us along a different route. Although it may be hard to follow and difficult to understand, nevertheless, if we do not tread it, that different route, we shall never know real peace. Although it may seem difficult for Christians to suffer in terms of being wronged or cheated, it is actually much more difficult to fight on, to take the wrong, to be defrauded, in order to preserve unity in the church and peace in the church. End quote. You see what Jackman is saying? Think about Jesus Christ. 
he did not regard himself, but thought about the glory of his God and Father and the salvation of his elect. And he put aside all of his self-interest. He sacrificed himself to bring reconciliation and forgiveness to reality. He did that in his death under the wrath of God on the cross. And that may be hard, it seems, to Christians. It is hard for a Christian to say, I'm not sure I can go that route, but that is the route we are to go. If any man would come after me, Jesus said, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And Jackman says, it may be difficult, may be hard to follow, hard to understand, but that is indeed the way that keeps and promotes, fosters and flourishes unity and peace within the local church. So, Christian, why not rather take the wrong? And, you know, sometimes Christians think, I've been wronged by that brother or that sister. And actually, if all of the truth came out and all of the facts were put on the table, you'd find out you actually weren't wronged at all. But the words still apply. Whether you think you were wronged and it's true you were wronged, or whether you think you were wronged and it really is not true that you were wronged, in either case, the same principle applies. Why not take the wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? For the glory and honor of the triune God. Isn't that sufficient motivation? For the unity and spiritual prosperity of the local church, isn't that an added motivation? For the gospel testimony before an onlooking world, for the salvation of sinners, for the good and sanctification of your own soul and life, take the wrong, take the wrong, follow Christ. So that is the third component to the nature of biblical unity, spiritual unity, ecclesiastical unity, and civil unity. But now I would like us to turn briefly to look at some motives. I've given you motives through this message, but motives for maintaining and cultivating biblical unity. And the first motive is this. The Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles were very earnest in their prayers as well as in their instruction, of course, regarding Christian unity, and so should we. We should be earnest in our prayers concerning Christian unity. Turn to probably the most pivotal passage on this matter, John 17, the Lord Jesus Christ's high priestly prayer. John 17, and we'll first read verse 11. John 17, 11. Jesus praying to his Father in heaven, and I am no more in the world, and these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. You see, the Lord Jesus prayed that all of his disciples would be unified in mind, heart, will, and purpose. And the perfect pattern for the disciples of the Lord, the perfect pattern for the disciples to imitate, 
is that of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Was there ever any disunity between God the Father and God the Son? Any disharmony, any rancor, any disputes, any disagreements? No, never, 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 never. And so Jesus prayed, and we should pray, Lord, help us to be one, even as God the Father and God the Son are. But now drop down to verse 20 in John 17. Verse 20, Neither for these only do I pray, but for them also that believe on me through their word. So this prayer of Jesus recorded in John 17, was not just for the disciples that he knew there on earth at that time. This prayer was also for those who would subsequently believe on the Lord Jesus Christ through the word of the apostles, the word of the disciples. Verse 21, what did he pray? That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you did send me, and the glory which you have given me I have given unto them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected into one, that the world may know that you did send me and loved me, loved them, even as you loved me. We stop the reading there. So four times in three verses, the Lord used the word one in his prayer with reference to his disciples. Clearly, unity among the people of God, unity among Christ's disciples, was an earnest concern for the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, it should be our earnest concern as well, and should be a matter frequently upon our lips in private, in our families, in the church, our prayers to God, that we would be one. And by the grace of God, I believe that is the case at Trinity Baptist Church. But we must not be ignorant of the devil's devices. We must not be naive about our own remaining corruption and sin. We must not be oblivious to the pressures of the world that are all around us and upon us, we must therefore earnestly and frequently pray that we would know even greater measures of spirit-wrought biblical unity in our midst. In his high priestly prayer, the Lord gave us this significant motive to cultivate and foster unity among ourselves in the church and amongst all Christians in all churches. Christian unity in any local biblical church proclaims to an onlooking world that the one true and living God in love did indeed send Jesus Christ into the world to save sinners. You may say, I don't really understand how that could possibly be seen by the onlooking world. They don't come into this building. Well, they have interaction with you to one degree or another in your neighborhood or maybe at the place of work. They're aware of how you are related to Christians in your church. You speak about it properly during the lunchtime or during a coffee break or whatever the case may be. You see, the world sees far more than we often realize. And I may have used this illustration before, but if I did, that's okay. It's still valid. In our kitchen, we have a lot of windows, and we eat there at our table near those windows. 
Outside, there's a bunch of these arborvitae bushes. And they're there because the distance from our house to our neighbor's house, it's not very far. And those bushes are beautiful, and they provide a nice block between us. And yet my neighbor, he frequently tells me different things, and I say, how does he know this? He says, Jeff, I see that you and your, you know, you and your family after dinner, you, 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 you read the Bible together. And I, and I really I said, yeah, we do that. But I'm thinking, how does he know that? How does he see that? He observes us leaving for church. He today was out in his front lawn doing garden work, you know, and he often waves to me. You know, I'm not sure what he thought. I was in my suit and everything, and I was there in the car by myself. He knows it's lockdown, but he observes things, and we've been able to speak the gospel to him and to his wife. So we need to remember when there is unity amongst Christians. The world sees it, and that should motivate us to earnestly pray for even greater measures of unity. But now turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 13. It was not just the Lord Jesus who gave us this example of praying, of working for unity in the church, but the apostles did as well. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 13. Breaking into the verse there, verse 13, and to esteem them highly in love for their work's sake, be at peace among yourselves. And we exhort you, brethren, Admonish the disorderly, encourage the faint-hearted, support the weak, be long-suffering toward all, see that none render unto anyone evil for evil, but always follow after that which is good, one toward another and toward all. There we stop the reading. In verse 13, the Apostle Paul commanded Christians in the church in Thessalonica to be at peace among yourselves. So we have this command from the Lord. We have it from the apostles right here in this text. Be at peace among yourselves. And then Paul went on to exhort the Christians in the church with six specific exhortations. Notice them in these verses. Verse 14, admonish the disorderly. How do you maintain peace within the local church? How do you maintain unity Well, one part of it is at times correcting, admonishing a brother or a sister, not sinfully, of course, not from sinful motives, not in an inappropriate manner or place. But as you have interaction one with another, if a brother or sister says something and you say, brother, I think what you just said actually was not necessary. I think it was actually gossip then you should say, please forgive me for that. Thank you for admonishing me. That's how we preserve and foster unity, by admonishing one another appropriately. But notice the second. There in verse 14, encourage the faint-hearted. How do you preserve unity? 
Look among yourselves. We can't do it right now. We're not physically in this building, but when we are able to be together again, as you consider other brothers and sisters in Christ in the church, and you realize this one is someone who tends to be easily discouraged, come alongside and encourage that brother or sister with the word of God, just with your friendship, so that they are not severed from the unity of the church. Notice the third exhortation. Support the weak. Help those, not only those that are faint-hearted, tend to be discouraged, but those who are weak, maybe physically weak, maybe spiritually weak. Number four, be long-suffering toward all. Be patient one with another, forbearing one another in love. Notice the fifth, render no one, render unto anyone evil for evil. Don't retaliate. Don't take vengeance. Don't be spiteful. Don't give evil for evil. No. The sixth, follow after that which is good, one toward another and toward all. So if we take these six exhortations of the Apostle Paul to heart, if we bring them in prayer to God, we will indeed foster spiritual, ecclesiastical, and civil peace and unity among the brethren here in this church. And it's true for any church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then, turn now to Psalm 133. Psalm 133 and verses 1 through 3. There are gracious results and heavenly comforts which flow from preserving unity in the church. Psalm 133. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that came down upon the skirt of his garments, like the dew of Hermon that comes down upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. So, brethren, would we have that blessing of life forevermore as our possession by Jesus Christ individually and corporately? Would we see sinners converted unto the Lord Jesus Christ in our midst, our children who are yet unbelieving and impenitent? Well, then we must pray for and work for and cultivate true biblical unity in our midst as we have studied Where love reigns, God reigns. That's not my words. Those are the words of Charles Spurgeon commenting on Psalm 133. Where love reigns, God reigns. Spurgeon goes on. He says, where love wishes blessing, there God commands the blessing. Isn't that a wonderful reality? It's here in Psalm 133. Spurgeon's right. We wish for God's blessing. We pray for God's blessing. And here we're told that's where God commands the blessing. Life forevermore, where there is peace and unity amongst the brethren. Spurgeon goes on and says, God has but to command, and it is done. He is so pleased to see his dear children happy in one another that he fails not to make them happy in himself. 
He gives especially his best blessing of eternal life. For love is life. Dwelling together in love, we have begun the enjoyments of eternity. Oh, for more of this rare virtue. Not the love which comes and goes, but that which dwells. Not that spirit which separates and secludes, but that which dwells together. Not that mind which is all for debate and difference, but that which dwells together in unity. That is Charles Spurgeon commenting on Psalm 133. Gracious, heavenly results and comfort come to the people of God in the local church when we pray earnestly for biblical unity, when we cultivate and foster true spirit-wrought biblical unity, God commands the blessing, even life forevermore. Where love reigns, God reigns. Where love wishes blessing, there God commands his blessing. Well, brethren, may this be our heart's earnest desire indeed. Let's pray and ask God to fulfill his word of promise, even here in Psalm 133. So let's seek him now in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, how rich and how practical it is indeed. We thank you for the portion we've studied from 1 Corinthians 6. Even though there are sad, sobering portions to it, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you for John 17 and the Lord Jesus Christ's high priestly prayer for unity. Lord, help us to follow in his footsteps and pray as he prayed for such unity. And Lord, we thank you that by your grace we have unity, but we long for even greater measures of unity that we would know yet the outpouring of the blessing of eternal life upon our unconverted children who are in our midst. Come, Lord, and command that blessing, even life forevermore. Help us, we pray by your grace and power and spirit, to be diligent, to maintain, and to prosper the peace and the unity that you've given us as a church. We ask for these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.